0: Welcome to this episode of the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Today, we will present the first of a two-part series on the most successful filmmaker of not just the 1980s, but in the entire history of cinema. On a future episode, we will cover the 1980 films written and or produced by Steven Spielberg. In this episode, we'll take a look at the man and the films he directed. Several which helped define the decade and, for better or for worse, changed the entire direction of the industry. Steven Spielberg in the 1980s, the director. The Dawn of a New Decade, January 1st, 1980. Filmmaker Steven Spielberg was not having the happiest of new years. 1941, his big-budget World War II comedy, featuring some of the best comic actors working, including the first theatrical on-screen pairing of Saturday Night Live favorites Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, was not living up to the lofty expectations put onto the film, by the public, or the top brass at Universal Studios. Spielberg's previous two movies, Jaws, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, had combined for nearly $400 million in ticket sales, at a time when the average movie ticket had cost $2.03 in 1975 when Jaws was released, and $2.23 when Close Encounters was released in 1977. But after two weeks in theaters during the lucrative Christmas holiday season, it had become clear that 1941 was not going to be another home run for Hollywood's Boy Wonder. While the film did play in theaters for nearly four months, its unadjusted domestic gross of $31.76 million would be the fourth lowest of his career, although the film would gain a cult following in the ensuing years and eventually made a small profit for co-producers Universal Studios and Columbia Pictures. And if that wasn't bad enough, his longtime relationship with actress Amy Irvin had ended just before the release of the film. Steven Spielberg was in unfamiliar territory going into the 1980s, alone with his professional reputation tarnished. Steven Spielberg really needed a win. Steven Spielberg's friendship with George Lucas is legendary. Their shared vacation in Hawaii during the May 1977 opening weekend of Star Wars, where it is claimed they came up with the idea of Raiders of the Lost Ark, has moved into the stuff of mythology. How much of that legend is real, though, is debatable. It is known that Lucas originally came up with the first idea for what he then called the Adventures of Indiana Smith around the time that he was finishing production on American Graffiti, It is also known filmmaker Philip Kaufman was the one who came up with the plot device of the Ark of the Covenant at least two years earlier, before he left to direct Clint Eastwood and the outlaw Josie Wales in the fall of 1975. Over the course of three years, while Lucas worked with Leigh Brackett and Lawrence Kasdan on The Empire Strikes Back, and Spielberg with John Milius and Bob Gale and Bob Zumeckis on 1941, the story that would become Raiders of the Lost Ark took shape. Spielberg, who had wanted to direct a Bond film for years, wanted the hero to emulate Ian Fleming's iconic hero, while Lucas was happy enough with the scholarly adventurer we'd come to know and love. Between Kasdan, who was moved on to Raiders once his work on the Empire screenplay was complete, and Lucas and Spielberg, the creative team, came up with so many action set pieces that several of them were saved for what would become the second part of a planned trilogy. But even with a Hollywood dream team of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg at the forefront, every studio in town initially turned Raiders down, balking at the $20 million price tag and Lucas's demands for production control. Eventually, Paramount Pictures would agree to produce the film on Lucas's terms, as long as he would agree to a five-picture deal to make movies for the venerable studio. Casting began in earnest, with a relative newcomer, Tom Selleck, cast as the hero, but Selleck was forced to withdraw after the CBS television network, now recognizing they had a star in waiting, picked up their option for a new series called Magnum P.I. With only three weeks before shooting was set to begin, Spielberg was able to persuade Lucas to talk to his Star Wars star Harrison Ford about taking the role. Ford signed on, and the production began on Raiders of the Lost Ark, on time, on June 23, 1980, in a small seaport town on the west coast of France. Indiana Jones, improbably having hitched a ride on the outside of a Nazi submarine, tries to find a way to track the movements of the Ark through this Nazi bunker. Production started here first because, trying to save money, Lucas had negotiated a deal to use some of Wolfgang Peterson's sets for the concurrently shooting Das Boot, while that production was working on other scenes on other sets. Over the course of 73 days of shooting, Spielberg's team would also shoot in Hawaii, Tunisia, San Francisco, and Stockton, in addition to their home base at London's Elstree Studios. The film was editing together well, but Marsha Lucas, then wife of George and a well-respected editor in her own right, felt that the film's ending was a little cold. Indy still had his meeting with the government agents and was assured the arc would be handled by top men, but there was no sign of Marion in the film after the Nazis had been wiped clean out on the island. Although she had no official credit on the film, it was Marcia who made the suggestion that led to the addition of Marion and Indy on the steps after the meeting. And Stephen also added a very last scene in the movie as his own personal homage to the end of Citizen Kane. The film was completed in the spring of 1981, but not without one final speed bump. When Paramount Pictures submitted Raiders to the Motion Picture Association of America for a rating, the film was returned with an R rating. The ratings board was cool with Tot's melting head and Dietrich's head getting crushed, but it was Belloc's exploding head that would be the basis for the restrictive rating. And remember, the the PG-13 rating would not be created for another three years. And we'll get into that later on in this episode. So a compromise was reached where a veil of fire would be added in front of the gore to mask part of the effect.
1: of Jaws and Star Wars bring you Indiana a totally modern hero, trust me. And a new age of adventure. From the jungles of Peru to the streets of Cairo, from the greed of the fairies to the wrath of God, Raiders of the Lost Ark with PG.
0: Having secured that far more lucrative PG rating, Raiders of the Lost Ark opened on June 12, 1981, and secured the number one spot with a gross of $8.3 million from 1,078 theaters. Raiders would continue to play into theaters until the following March, 10 months later, almost never leaving the box office top 10 during that entire run. It would be the number one film of 1981, grossing nearly twice its next two closest competitors on Golden Pond and Superman two. Now, it should be noted that since this episode is only covering the movies directed by Steven Spielberg during the 80s, we will not be covering Poltergeist on this episode. We're confident in this decision, based on our personal research, that while Spielberg was definitely a hands-on producer during the production and may have helped with a number of scenes, Toby Hooper is the properly credited director of the film. While basking in the glow of his success with Raiders, Spielberg was busy prepping his next film. As with many movie projects, the final product would be quite different from the one originally intended. At first, Growing Up was a small, semi-autobiographical film about Spielberg's childhood, which he originally intended to shoot after Close Encounters on a low budget and a 28-day shooting schedule. Growing Up would morph into a sci-fi horror film, first entitled Watch the Skies, based on a true story about a Kentucky family who claimed to have been terrorized by a group of aliens. Unable to get Lawrence Kasdan, who was already working on a screenplay for Empire and had raiders waiting in the wings, Spielberg turned to an up-and-coming writer, John Sayles, who had written the Jaws-spoof Piranha, to write the new screenplay, which was now being called Night Skies. But after Sales turned in his first and only draft of the screenplay, Spielberg had second thoughts about bad aliens and turned to Melissa Matheson, the screenwriter of The Black Stallion, who happened to be dating Harrison Ford around the time of Raiders Productions, to work on a more friendly version of the story. Within a few weeks, Matheson turned in her first draft of the screenplay, which was now called E.T. and Me, to Spielberg. However, in February 1981, Columbia Pictures, who had the right of first refusal for any production that may have been born out of Close Encounters, refused Matheson's new screenplay and put the project into that dreaded Hollywood purgatory turnaround. It is said that Frank Price, then head of Columbia, was not interested in making a wimpy Disney movie. But, said Scheinberg, the president of Universal Pictures and a longtime friend and mentor to Spielberg, was more than happy to pick up the project from Columbia, paying a million dollars that other studio had spent developing that project. Filming on the movie, shot under the fake title A Boy's Life, began in and around the greater Los Angeles metropolitan area in September of 1981. Spielberg would shoot for 61 days, completing filming four days ahead of schedule, and would employ some friends in small ways. Harrison Ford would shoot a cameo that would end up getting cut from the final film as one of the young protagonists' teacher, and it was Bob Zemeckis who suggested the memorable scene of the alien being disguised as a toy in Elliot's closet. In
1: 1975, he directed Jaws. In 1978, he directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In 1981, he directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now, Steven Spielberg brings us E.T. The Extraterrestrial. We will witness the arrival, the search, the desertion, the fear, the discovery, the friendship. I'm keeping you. The secret, the love. warning, the signal, the mystery, the danger, the intrusion, the wonderment, the enchantment, the hope. The connection has been made. Universal Pictures presents... Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial.
0: Opening one day before the first anniversary of Raiders theatrical release, June 11, 1982, E.T. The Extraterrestrial would open in first place, earning $11.8 million in 1,103 theaters. The film would be the number one film in the nation for its first six weeks of release and would either be the number one or number two film for 19 weeks and would not drop out of the top ten until February of 1983. The film would continue to play in theaters until early June 1983, one week shy of its own first anniversary in theaters, finishing its initial theatrical run with $352.9 million, surpassing the previous box office champion, Star Wars, by more than $50 million. And ever the workhorse, Spielberg would already be working on his next project, while his current project was just opening in theaters. Twilight Zone the movie teams Spielberg with three of the hottest directors working then. On June 24th, Four acclaimed directors, George Miller, John Landis,
1: Joe Dante, and Steven Spielberg, take you to another dimension. Twilight Zone, the movie, rated PG. Starts Friday, June 24th.
0: Check newspapers for local listings. Brought aboard because of producer Spielberg's love of his jaws spoof piranha, this would be Dante's big Hollywood break, as well as the Australian Miller's first production in the United States. Spielberg, Dante, and Miller would remake classic episodes of the iconic show, while Landis would write an original screenplay that incorporated elements of two other classic episodes. Spielberg's episode, Kick the Can, is a retelling of a Richard Matheson story about an old man who grants a new lease on life for the residents of a retirement home. The episode features a number of the trademark directing flourishes that make a Steven Spielberg movie so identically unique, but compared to Dante's frenetic It's a Good Life or Miller's penetrating Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, Kick the Can feels, well, rather pedantic. And then the film, dodged by controversy surrounding the death of actor Vic Morrow, and two children during the shooting of a climactic scene in the Landis segment, would only open in fourth place with $6.6 million from 1,275 theaters and would be finished five weeks later with only $29.5 million in ticket sales. And although he was not present on the Landis set the night of the accident, Steven Spielberg, from all accounts, was greatly affected by what happened. His friendship with Landis which was once so strong that Spielberg filmed a rare on-screen cameo for the Blues Brothers, was over. And, as a primary producer on the film, Spielberg could have been considered partially liable for the accident. What he needed was something that would take him far away from Hollywood and all the troubles that were mounting. And in April 1983, Steven Spielberg would begin filming on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Spielberg would eventually admit Temple of Doom was a lot darker than it probably needed to be, and a lot of that darkness came from where he was emotionally after the accident. It also didn't help that his friend and collaborator George Lucas was going through a divorce from Marcia. Five years after making the film, Spielberg would admit that he wasn't happy with the film at all. It was too dark, too subterranean, and much too horrific. He'd say that there wasn't an ounce of his own personal feeling in it, and that the only good thing that ever came out of it would be that he met his future wife on it. but even with the torture and the violence and the live beating hearts and the monkey brains, there's still quite a lot of good work in the film. Jonathan K Kwan's short round was one of the best young sidekicks to ever grace the silver screen. Douglas Slocum's clever lighting belies the fact that the majority of the film was shot on sound stages in England. And not somewhere in India or Sri Lanka, and the opening fifty minutes are among the tightest and strongest of all of Spielberg's filmography. In the name of science,
2: you know how to fly, don't you?
0: You'll go anywhere.
2: No, do you?
1: In the name of excitement, you'll try anything. Step on it! Because if adventure has a name, it must be Indiana Jones. Harrison Ford in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom.
0: Audiences were excited to be back with Harrison Ford's charming archaeologist, making Indiana Jones and the Temple of the Doom the third highest-grossing film of the year, earning more than $179 million. But, like Raiders three years earlier, Temple of Doom was criticized for its most violent moments. Some parents, apparently having forgotten the face-melting and head-crushing and head-bursting climax of the first movie, we're appalled to discover a movie tagged with a rating that literally says parental guidance suggested some material may not be suitable for children, featured people eating obviously fake eyeballs and monkey brains, children getting beaten, and one poor soul getting burned alive in an evil ritual before having his still-beating heart ripped out of his chest and held high as it burst into flames in the bad guy's hands. Junior was going to need many years of therapy. Many, many, many fucking years of therapy. Between the Temple of Doom and the cartoonish violence in the Spielberg-produced Gremlins, which would be released into theaters two weeks after Doom, the Motion Picture Association of America was ready to create a new rating. Working with Spielberg, MPAA president Jack Valenti would come up with the PG-13 rating, which, while still being a non-restrictive rating, meaning any kid under 13 could see a PG-13 movie without an accompanying parent, would, in the words of Robert Selig, then president of the California Association of Theater Owners, put more of a burden on the responsibility on the parents from whom the code rating system was originally intended for and still is. The new PG-13 rating would be introduced on July 1, 1984, with the first film to be rated PG-13 being Gary Marshall's The Flamingo Kid that week. But the first PG-13 movie to be released in theaters would be John Milius' Red Dawn on August 10th, since Marshall's movie was being held back for Christmas release. 1985 would be a year of great change for Steven Spielberg. On the personal front, he had gotten back together with Amy Irving, resulting in a marriage and his first child, A Son Named Max. It would also bring forth his first major television show as a producer, the anthology series Amazing Stories, which aired for two years on the NBC television network. We'll cover the uh, television series more in part two, but we will spend a moment talking about the two episodes that Spielberg did direct. The first episode was Ghost Train, which would be the premiere episode of the series. Based on a story by Spielberg, Ghost Train would feature the great Roberts Blossom as an older gentleman who objected to his son building a home on the site of a train accident, which the old man believed should have killed him 75 years before. Also featuring a very young Lucas Haas, Ghost Train featured a number of the Spielberg theatrical touches, including a John Williams score, cinematography by his then-regular DP Alan Deview shots from the child's point of view, and a fantastical ending not unlike the first alien invasion scene in Close Encounters. And Ghost Train would become the high, one of the highest rated episodes of the show's two-year run. His second episode, The Mission, was also based on a story by Spielberg, and would be one of only two episodes that were an hour long instead of the regular 30 minutes. It's also the most cinematic and arguably the best episode of the entire series. Is about an Air Force squadron during World War II on their twenty fourth mission dropping bombs on enemy territory. While their mission is deemed a success, the plane suffers from major damage in the crossfire, leaving the underplane turret gunner trapped in his space with no way out. And on their way back to base, they also discover the landing gear won't deploy, which would require a belly landing that would crush the gunner dead. As they get closer to the base, they try to do everything they can to reclaim the situation to save their crewmate. The first season of Amazing Stories would be nominated for nine Emmy Awards and would win three. This one episode, The Mission, would account for nearly half of the nominations, including one for Steven Spielberg for Outstanding Direction for a Drama Series, and would get two of those wins, Outstanding Cinematography in a Drama Series and Outstanding Sound Editing for a Series. That directing nomination for Spielberg is still his only Emmy nomination as a director. The mission, despite its then-standard 1.37 to 1 television aspect ratio, feels very much like a movie. But because of the series' overall lack of success at the time, and its relative obscurity with modern audiences, the episode is best remembered today as being an early starring role for Kevin Costner. As the captain of the bomber and an early co-starring role for Kiefer Sutherland as an engineer on the plane who will do almost anything to save his friend. You may also recognize Karen Kopins, who would appear on movie screens in the Jim Carrey comedy Once Bitten, not two weeks after the first airing of this episode, or Casey Samosko, who had appeared in the Spielberg produced Back to the Future earlier in the year and would star in another Spielberg production Three O'Clock High two years later. It also features Gary Riley who would star alongside Sutherland in Stand By Me the following summer, and Anthony LaPaglia in his very first screen role. 1985 was also the year Steven Spielberg wanted to be taken seriously by the film community, not only as a successful filmmaker of summer blockbusters, but also as an award-winning artist. The Color Purple would be about as an abrupt right turn as any director could ever take. It would be his first theatrical feature where he worked with a music composer other than John Williams. It would be his first film that would touch on more adult subjects like domestic violence, incest, pedophilia, poverty, racism, and sexism. It would be only his second film featuring a female lead protagonist, and his first and to date only film that featured a predominantly African-American cast.
1: color purple a heartwarming story for the whole world it's about life it's about love it's about us you will always remember mister should old mister
0: Color Purple would be his first film where he earned an Academy Award nomination as a producer, one of 11 nominations the film would secure, and as many of us know, one of those 11 nominations was not for Best Director. The directing nomination that we would expect to go to the director of a Best Picture nominee, as was the case with the other four films nominated for Best Picture that year, would go to Akira Kurosawa who earned his only Oscar nomination as a director for his masterful work on Ron. While Spielberg was probably unhappy not to be nominated for directing for The Color Purple, it's clear he didn't hold the snub against kurosawa Spielberg, along with George Lucas, would present the master filmmaker a Lifetime Achievement Award in 1990 and acknowledging in his remarks that Ron was one of the director's indisputable classics. The Color Purple would tie an ignoble record at the 58th Academy Awards, becoming the second film after Herbert Ross's The Turning Point to be nominated for so many Oscars and not winning a single award. The Best Picture Award would go to Sidney Pollock's Out of Africa, which continued the Academy's then regular tradition of rewarding overblown historical epics. And in hindsight, there were a plethora of better films that should have won over Out of Africa including Best Picture nominees Witness, Pritzy's Honor, Kiss of the Spider Woman, and The Color Purple. And some of the movies that were nominated for other awards, but not Best Picture, including Ron, Brazil, Mask, The Official Story, The Purple Rose of Cairo, Back to the Future, and Silverado. And then there's the movies that inexplicably didn't get a single nomination, including... Lost in America, and After Hours. Suffice to say, The Color Purple was in very good company that year when it came to being shunned for the top award. The Academy would do their best to make it up to Spielberg the following year when the then 39-year-old filmmaker was awarded the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award, awarded periodically by the Academy to, quote, creative producers whose body of work reflects a consistently high quality of motion picture production." Unquote. It should be noted that as of March 30th, 1987, when Spielberg was being given the Thalberg, he had produced a grand total of 4 movies, all made between 1982 and 1985. To be fair, 2 of those 4 films, E.T. and The Color Purple, had been nominated for best picture, but 4 movies in four years, doesn't really reflect a body of work that reflects a consistent high quality. During his acceptance speech, Spielberg spoke about a topic that resonated with the then 18-year-old me that I still remember vividly 33 years later.
2: I'm told Irving Thalberg worshipped writers, and that's where it all begins, that we are first and foremost storytellers, and without, as he called it, the photo play, everybody is simply improvising. He also knew that a script is more than just a blueprint, that the whole idea of movie magic is that interweave of powerful image and dialogue and performance and music that can never be separated, and when it's working right, can never be duplicated or ever forgotten. I've grown up. Most of my life has been spent in the dark watching movies. Movies have been the literature of my life. The literature of Irving Thalberg's generation was books and plays. They read the great words of great minds. And I think in our romance with technology and our excitement at exploring all the possibilities of film and video, I think we've partially lost something that we now have to reclaim. I think it's time to renew our romance with the word. I'm as culpable as anyone in having exalted the image of the word at the expense of the image, exalting the image at the expense of the word. But only a generation of readers will spawn a generation of writers.
0: Originally planned for the Onion Field director Harold Becker, and then David Lean, Empire of the Sun would become Spielberg's most personal film to date. The adventures of a young British boy through the Japanese occupation of China during World War II spoke strongly to Spielberg, still fond of his father's stories, about being a radio operator in the South Pacific during the war. With a screenplay by noted playwright Tom Stoppard, and adapted from the novel by J.G. Ballard about his own experiences during the war, Empire of the Sun would be the first starring role for 12-year-old Christian Bale, who was recommended to the filmmaker by his wife Amy Irving, who had starred with Bale in a TV movie the year before, and was approved by Ballard, who felt Bale had a more than slight physical resemblance to himself at the same age. Empire of the Sun would also star John Malkovich, Miranda Richardson, Joe Pantoliano, and Ben Stiller, who claimed during press releases for Topic Thunder that he conceived of that film while working on this film. While the pedigree for the film was impressive, and would eventually be considered one of the more underrated films in his filmography, the film just did not register with the critics or the audiences at the time, grossing just $22.25 million in North America and a total of $66.7 million worldwide against a $25 million production budget. But the film would be nominated for six Academy Awards, although none for Spielberg as a producer or director, and, like the color purple two years earlier, would go home empty handed 1989 would be another unique year for Steven Spielberg, it would be the first time in his career that two films he directed would be released in the same year, a feat he would repeat in 1993,
1: 1997, 2002, 2005, and 2011. On Wednesday, May 24th, Paramount Pictures invites you to have the adventure of your life. Dead! Hot, dead. Hot. Keeping up with the Joneses. Are you crazy? Are you crazy? Harrison Ford. Sean Connery. You call this archaeology? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, rated PG-13. Starts Wednesday, May 24th at theaters everywhere.
0: Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade would be the third and final film in the trilogy, Spielberg's last teaming with Harrison Ford, and the closest he would ever come to directing a Bond movie, his first and only directing gig with the legendary Sean Connery. It took a while to get the script right for this one. Romancing the Stone, writer Diane Thomas was hired to write the first draft of the third Indiana Jones movie, which George Lucas originally wanted to make a sort of a haunted mansion horror-slash-adventure hybrid, which Steelberg rejected as being too similar to Poltergeist. Lucas then wrote a treatment in September of 1984, a few months after the opening of Temple of Doom, which was then called Indiana Jones and the Monkey King, which saw Indy battling a Scottish ghost before finding the fountain of youth in Africa. The Holy Grail was introduced in this draft as a first-act device, but Spielberg was not too fond of it at the time. Chris Columbus, writing off the success of having written Gremlins and the Goonies, but still a couple years away from directing Adventures in Babysitting, was brought in to flesh out Lucas's idea. Between May and August of 1985, Columbus would write two drafts of the script, which Spielberg would reject as well. Spielberg himself would bring in Mayno Meijes, his writer for The Color Purple and that Amazing Stories episode, The Mission, in to start all over again. At Spielberg's insistence, Indy's father would be introduced as a character, but Meijes' draft, which would take most of 1986 to write, was similarly rejected. Spielberg would next bring in interspace writer Jeffrey Bohm, who would finally put together a script that all the major principals, Spielberg, Lucas, Ford, Connery, and the paramount powers that be, could agree on, although that would not stop Spielberg from bringing in Tom Stoppard for a final script polish, which was completed eight days before production began in May of 1988. When the film premiered in theaters a year later, it would set a number of box office records during its opening weekend, including the first time any film had ever grossed more than $10 million in a single day. It also set opening weekend and opening week numbers, but those numbers would only last about a month until the opening of Tim Burton's Batman. Steven Spielberg, the director, would end the 1980s with Always, a remake of the 1943 Victor Fleming film A Guy Named Joe. He was the
1: luckiest flyer alive. Then,
0: I'm dead. That's right.
1: Now, he's got one more mission to accomplish.
0: They hear you inside
1: their own minds, as if it were their thoughts. Give him a chance, out. Okay, kid, you got a chance. Don't screw it up. I'm gonna like this job. Richard Dreyfus, Holly Hunter, John Goodman. From director Steven Spielberg. Always rated PG. Starts Friday, December 22nd at theaters everywhere.
0: Spielberg and screenwriters Jerry Belson and Diane Thomas would move the action from World War II to the modern day and change the hero from a bomber pilot to an aerial firefighter pilot, but the plot is essentially the same. A pilot who has recently died acts as an unseen conscience to a new pilot who ends up falling for the dead pilot's still grieving girlfriend. One of Spielberg's strengths as a director has always been able to gather a great cast together And Always is no exception. What filmmaker wouldn't kill to have worked with Richard Dreyfuss, Holly Hunter, John Goodman, Robert's Blossom, Keith David, and Mark Helbenberger on the same movie? But if that wasn't enough, Always holds a special place in cinema as being the final film appearance for Audrey Hepburn, playing Dreyfuss's guardian angel. And her moments with Dreyfuss remind us of why every single one of her 20 movie appearances beginning with Roman Holiday of hers, was special and unique and magical and to be treasured. Always is, one would expect from a Spielberg production, a technically proficient movie. The performances are uniformly excellent, save the miscast Brad Johnson in his first major film role. Dreyfus and Hunter had exceptional chemistry together, and it would have been fun to see Dreyfus and Goodman do more films together because they worked so well together and Audrey Hepburn. If there is a God, Hepburn was God's heartbreaking work of staggering genius. But always would not be a big hit, opening in fifth place that weekend before Christmas and disappearing from theaters before the end of January. The 1980s would end for Spielberg the way the 70s ended for Spielberg. His big Christmas release would not be a hit with critics or audiences, with that last film being the second lowest-grossing feature of the decade for his directing efforts. And his relationship with Amy Irving would hit the skids again, although this time their divorce would be a far more costly financial hit than their breakup ten years earlier. And the two decades would be parallel in that he directed a film that would become the most successful movie of all time to that point, Jaws in 1975, which would be surpassed by Star Wars two years later, and E.T. in 1982, which would be surpassed by Titanic 15 years later. And the end of the 80s would reinforce Steven Spielberg's importance in cinema history, both as a producer and director. The vast majority of his directorial output for the remainder of his career would be a bouncing mix of big, fun, escapist entertainment and serious stories meant to tell a greater truth. He would go from Jurassic Park to Schindler's List, The Lost World Jurassic Park to Amistad, War of the Worlds to Munich. And he's also the only filmmaker to have ever opened two big-budget movies in the same week, when, in 2011, his adaptations of The Adventures of Tintin and War Horse opened four days apart. As I record this podcast in the waning days of summer 2019, Steven Spielberg is hard at work on his remake of The West Side Story, his first ever musical. He is 72 years old, and he's been making movies professionally for 48 of those years. He's been nominated for Best Director seven times, and he's won that Oscar twice. Ten of the films he's directed have been nominated for Best Picture, although only one has actually won the award. He's been knighted by the Queen of England, albeit an honorary knighthood, for his services to the British film industry, having filmed so many of his movies in the United Kingdom. He's also received honorariums from Belgium, France, and Germany, and he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama. He's been giving honorary degrees from Brown University, Boston University, and Harvard. He even helped design a merit badge in cinematography for the Boy Scouts. And his proceeds from the success of Schindler's List helped create the Shoah Foundation, an organization that has archived film testimony of Holocaust survivors and aims to educate the public on the horrors of the Shoah, ensuring that the world remembers the six million who died so that we do not repeat the same mistakes of the past. In our modern world, when talking about the likes of a Scorsese or a Cameron or a Lucas, the phrase, they will never be forgotten, is overused to the point of it having absolutely no value. But when it comes to Steven Spielberg, his legacy will continue as long as we have movies remaining an important part of our lives. He has enriched and changed our lives in so many immeasurable ways. In the coming weeks, we will take a look at his impact on the decade as a writer and a producer. And on a show in the near future, we will be featuring our first guest co-host. Thank you for listening. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written narrated and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward a. Havens or at Film Jerk. The Film Jerk podcast has been a production of idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again, and good night.